Welcome back to a very special edition of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. This Memorial Day, we honor the men and women in uniform, both past and present. Without their bravery, sacrifice, and service, we could not and would not be the great America that we are today. I'm Jason Sieber, the Kansas City Symphony's Associate Conductor. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Symphony's Director of Education. And I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute. So the Symphony has presented an event annually each year called Celebration at the Station. It happens the Sunday before Memorial Day, and it's been a tradition here for well over a decade. And unfortunately, last season and this season, those events were unable to happen due to the events we all know have been going on with the pandemic. But it, it truly is a spectacular event that honors our military and our veterans. And it's just a really special way to bring our community together. We see crowds of 40,000 people between Union Station here in Kansas City, all the way up the lawn to the Liberty Memorial and We perform incredible music, both patriotic and American music, and also a lot of really, you know, standard fun symphonic pieces as well. And it's just, it's, it's a really special time. It's a, it's a heck of a weekend getting Mm -hmm. it together. Our very small staff really, you know, spearheads this and puts it all together. And that's everything I think we mentioned in, in a previous podcast. I mean, that's everything from coordinating the tents and the booths and the toilets, the porta bodies to, you know, programming the music and finding our guest performers and our guest narrators and, you know, all of the artistic and operational stuff that goes along with it. It's an incredible amount of work. It's also tremendously rewarding. And it's really something that I miss us being able to do these past couple seasons. Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, one of the things that I love about Celebration at the station is we're always joined by the U.S. Air Force Band of Mid-America. And they play Star Spangled Banner with us. They play the 1812 Overture with us. And, you know, I always enjoy a collaboration with musicians whom I don't I don't normally play. And, you know, the three of us are all, uh, of course, very passionate about the idea of of service through music. And these incredible musicians, you know, serve our country through music. And especially on that day and on that occasion and location, uh, having them join us is really, really meaningful. Uh, They're terrific musicians. And I have to say, they look sharp in their (laughs) uniforms. You know, we're our our standard uniform for celebration at the station is like a white, you know, white dress shirt, black pants. They kind of look better than us. I got to I got to <laughs> admit they're really they're put together and they sound great and let me also say that when uh we play either banner but especially 1812 overture and we have probably twice as many brass players playing at once as we would normally have and we're in that, you know, kind of saddle-shaped tent. It is loud in there, <laughs> in the best possible uh, festive way. Add a few cannons to that, and, and, uh, and you, have, you, you have yourself a party. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. It's loud and exciting, and having the live cannons right there on, on, on the top of the lawn by the World War I Memorial is pretty special. Well, guys, that's exactly what we want to pay tribute today on this episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, actually, is the exceptional musicians who make up the military bands in our great country. You know, these are men and women just like our very own symphony musicians who dedicate their entire lives and careers to making music at the highest possible level. The audition process is very similar. It's extremely competitive. 
just like in the professional orchestra world. So it's really hard to get a spot in one of these top military bands, just like the Kansas City Symphony. And today we have the honor of sitting down with one of the members of the very prestigious Marine Band, the President's Own. Gunnery Sergeant Joseph DeLuccio and I were fellow classmates and friends at the Baldwin-Wallace Conservatory of Music many, many, many (laughs) years ago. And Joe has since been an oboist in the President's Own for 16 plus years. And now you guys know that I'm really old, if you didn't already. <laughs> so, Joe, we are so delighted to have you here on Beethoven Walks in Bar. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to this. It's going to be fun. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, the President's Own is, of course, one of the very top military bands we have in the United States, but it's unique in the sense that it doesn't just play concerts, it doesn't just play events. It, you, The versatility of this group and all of its functions are, are quite unique, I believe. Just talk a little bit about how the President's Own is different than most of the other military bands. Well, I think first and foremost, we have to just talk about its storied history. I mean, we're about to be celebrating our 223rd anniversary wow. this summer, and we are the oldest consecutively running musical organization in the country. And hmm. it was established by an act of Congress in 1798. And it was a couple years later that it was uh, Thomas Jefferson that denoted the name the president's own because of our main function, which was, and it still is, to provide music for the president of the United States, as well as the commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, So that would be our, if you see it written down on paper, that's our mission statement, so to speak. But as you illuminated, it's really so much more than that because we have so many more ceremonial functions. We have so many more things we do in terms of a symphonic season. We have a season just like a symphony orchestra. So I think it becomes something so unique. It's not like anything. You can't compare it to anything else. And I think that's what makes it so interesting for us as members. And I think for people that get to know us, they say, wow, they do all those things. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Uh, so I, I do think it's just this historic nature of the organization and just knowing you're part of this long, long history is just an honor in and of itself. And it's just exciting to see where we were and where we will continue to go. That's great. You know, many conservatory students, you know, when you and I were back at BW, I don't know what your dreams and goals and aspirations were then, but most conservatory students are focused on having an orchestral career, perhaps, or they maybe they want to be a music teacher. What led you, what first interested you in the military band opportunity and 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 motivated you to audition for the president's own? Well, because I'm amongst friends, even though I only know Jason from the past. <laughs> I, I want to be totally honest with you. And yeah. back in the 90s, which is when Jason and I were in school. The 1890s. Uh, I mean, the 1990s. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. It, it really wasn't something that was on my radar, if I'm being very honest. Uh, and I did not know a lot about it. And I studied with... Uh, people in undergrad and in graduate school from major symphonies, the Cleveland Orchestra and the Chicago Symphony, respectively. And 
it wasn't something they really mentioned. And, you know, Jason, you can chime in if you remember differently, but back in those days, there was probably, you know, the flyers they put on the bulletin boards and things. I think colleges still do that to this day. And maybe there was a flyer for those, these military bands. It really wasn't on my radar. Uh, and it wasn't until I had finished my undergrad, I went to graduate school, I took some time off, I played, you know, in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, and I freelanced a bit in the Chicago area. And I went back to school to start my DMA. It wasn't until then we had an actual member of the oboe section of the Air Force Band in D.C., and she came and gave a clinic at Cincinnati. She was a CCM student. And we did, she, I think she did a recital with a trio maybe, and it was then that our teacher had said, well, you know, there's this other audition coming up for the Marine Band. So we got the list and we said, well, this will be great, you know, orchestral audition experience, just audition experience in general. And I drove out there with uh, two other oboists. Uh, we made that, I think it's a nine hour drive from Cincinnati to DC. And uh, I, I wasn't really expecting anything from it. Lo and behold, I won. <laughs> 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 so, nice. I mean, and the rest is history, so so to speak. But I, I guess I want to illuminate that I'm glad that things are different now. Uh, I feel like schools and educators, it's like a new class of people. And there are more people aware of these elite military bands and just military music in general. It's a great career for people. And... I'm sad that I didn't know about it back then, but I'm glad to know that it's really more a part of the uh, discussion now. So I went, um, I went to the University of Michigan, which has an incredible, an incredibly large and well-rounded wind program. I mean, you know, the the wind ensembles there, it's it's a big deal. And I also went to high school in Texas. I'm a clarinetist. So I went to high school in Texas, where it's also a huge wind ensemble band marching. Oh, band. that's band all the time. That's yeah, Texas. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually I mean, you know, coming from that, like, I knew quite a few people who had been in those ensembles. I know quite I have quite a few friends from the University of Michigan, we can we can talk about offline, who are in um, in your band and also in in a lot of the other um, military bands. I actually auditioned for the Marine Band in 2002, maybe. Oh, okay. Didn't go my way, but I think it's turned out okay. I think Joe was probably on your audition committee and was like, no, I don't think so. (laughs) No. Those clarinet auditions, there's just a ton of people. But I think you're right. Like More people should know about it, but I think it also depends on where you're coming from and uh, one thing that I've noticed, um, my brother-in-law is actually in the Army Field Band, a- an oboist as well. Oh, okay. And um, I know through him, you know, just about the touring. I know not all groups tour, but I wonder, does, does the Marine Band tour at all? Do you guys do shows anywhere but D.C.? Oh, yes. We have a yeah. national concert tour every fall. Um, and it actually started... Uh, in the time of John Philip Sousa was the one who actually started the tours back in, well, I'm not going to say the date because I don't want to get it wrong. (laughs) And ever since then, there's been a consistent national concert tour 
Yeah, every fall. <laughs> that was a dumb question because I think you guys played here not, what, five years ago? Was we that played when... in your hall, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, a lot of my experience in knowing about what the, the band and the bands do is through the touring because I remember seeing groups come in from all branches of the military and tour through, you know, where I lived at the time, where I grew up and also through Ann Arbor and presenting concerts. So I think that's a, a huge thing that these groups do is to really showcase their musicianship. It's incredible what you guys do. I mean, the, it's on par with any major U.S. orchestra, the level of talent and the level of, I mean, when you when you auditioned, it was, I, I'm assuming, no doubt, uh, any fewer people showing up to that audition than would show up to an orchestral audition, right? Oh, yeah. And it depends on the instrument a lot of time, but we'd get so many. I mean, obviously, at a trumpet audition or a tuba audition, there's 130 or candidates or something. Right. Um, But even at mine, there was easily in the 40s. uh, And again, that was back in 2004. But going back to what you were saying, I actually, I'm glad to hear that you you saw those things coming through during your school days. That that actually reassures me that maybe it was just me or where I was at uh, that I didn't have it on my radar. I mean, as an oboist, I guess you have to think we have these aspirations of being, you know, the principal oboe of the Chicago Symphony or something. And that's great. And maybe I still did at the time, but I'm so glad to be where I am now in the type of versatility I have in this job. Uh, but I, I don't know, Jason, did you notice anything different? I mean, did you, do you remember seeing signs about that? I mean, you're a violinist, I do. but I, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I remember actually right outside of uh, Dwight Altman's uh, office because he would post a lot of job opportunities. And I do remember seeing some for, for the prestigious, the, the most prestigious military bands in the country. So I don't think you're making that up. I, I, I will back that up that I do remember seeing those kind of opportunities. And I'm glad that like, like you and Stephanie have been saying that those more and more people are making young, talented musicians aware that this is a possible career path as well. And I think, I think that's great. Joe, let's talk about presidential inaugurations because you've now played four of them, five of them. How many have you done? Uh, yes. Uh, four. Four. I was in the band for the second um, George W. Bush, uh-huh. but I, I didn't even have my uniforms yet. I was very new, so I didn't actually participate in yeah. that one. So yeah, it would have been four. Total. Four, yeah. So that must be incredibly exciting to play for an inauguration like that. Um, of course, it's only happened, what, about 60 times in our country's 240, 250-year history. So it's like you're there for a, a snapshot of a moment in time in our country's history. And just looking out at all those thousands and thousands of people, it must be incredibly exciting to perform for that kind of an event. It really is. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about just the historic nature of the job and all these amazing events in history that we get to take part in. And again, I really can't point out another organization that does quite what we do in that respect to try to play at this elite level and also at these really 
amazing points in history. And the inauguration is just uh, fantastic because it just really shows you what America does at its best. And it's, you know, the transfer of power from one administration to the next. And I think a lot of, you know, places would wish to emulate what we do. And I think you got to check yourself when you're sitting there and you might be feeling like, oh, it's really cold. It's 12 degrees. (laughs) And I've been awake for, you know, since very early on in the morning. But honestly, I remember specifically some, some of the inaugurations just looking out and seeing that crowd of and throngs of people just as far as the eye could see. And it really is a fantastic moment and you have to forget, you know, how you're feeling, you know, physically probably, but you just, you just know that you're participating in this amazing event. Like you said, that's only happened a certain amount of times in history. And uh, I'm lucky to have done that. And, you know, we'll see how many more I have in me. (laughs) Nice. So this leads me to a question actually, uh, just in general about, you know, kind of the structure and the functioning of, of the ensemble, you know, in contrast to, you know, a symphony orchestra, because, you know, we have a weekly routine, we have sort of a organizational structure and, I would imagine it's somewhat different in a military band. Maybe some things are similar. So, so talk a little bit about that, you know, just kind of what your rehearsal routine is. And also, honestly, I'm very curious about, you know, kind of the, the hierarchy uh, within the band and how formalized or not that is. And, you know, like I have a personnel manager who tells me when to show up at things like what, what would be the equivalent for you all? Sure. Well, first in terms of the uh, rehearsal schedule, uh, it's dependent on the season. So I'll start the winter spring season starts January through May. And typically, and we were, we obviously the last year with the pandemic was an exemption because we operated like your orchestra did indifferently. We had to, but typically we would have concerts every Sunday through that stretch of time, January through May. And that would be either band, orchestra, or the chamber music. Typically for that, we'd have four rehearsals for a band or orchestra concert. And then usually, typically, Tuesday through Friday. And then we have the concert on Sunday. And chamber music is the musicians develop their own rehearsal schedule. And so it would be however many rehearsals you feel your piece needs to get it where it needs to be before the dress rehearsal. When we move into the summer season, which we're starting next week, we have two concerts a week typically, and that's Wednesday, Thursday nights. They're outdoors. And we move to a two rehearsal a week schedule uh, during that time. Because typically the music is slightly lighter fare and we do it without an intermission and it's about you know 60 to 70 minutes of music give or take and then we move into the fall which is a little different because we have the national tour which I had mentioned we prep for that we leave October 1st typically and in the two weeks before 
we prep for that and have several rehearsals because we typically take three rotating programs. So that's a full symphonic program with soloists and marches and symphonic repertoire, transcriptions. So that, you know, would run typically close to two hours. And so we go on the road, we have those, the 30, it's usually 31 day tour. And we come back in November and December and we have a fairly different kind of schedule only because November is the Marine Corps birthday. It's Veterans Day. We have lots of events, you know, denoted for those things. And then in the winter, I think a lot of people prior curious, they think, oh, do you play all these holiday concerts? Mm -hmm. We do uh, have some standard ones. We always play at the Wolf Trap Center uh, and we play a sing carol, carol sing along there. And in addition, we play sometimes at the Marine Corps History Museum down near Quantico. And but the big events in December are the holiday receptions at the White House. Oh. And there could be anywhere from uh, 15 to 20 to 25. And those are stacked in for probably right after Thanksgiving all the way through a little bit before Christmas. And that's the orchestra typically. And lately, at least in the last administration, they enjoyed a brass choir that played outside for the guests. So we'll have to see if that comes back. But uh, I guess that encapsulates, you know, our calendar year from January through December, if that helps. So I, I asked a ding dong question earlier, like about the touring, but since <laughs> it's very clear that you've toured and you've been here, um, are there any places that you've enjoyed, especially enjoyed performing or halls that you visited or towns that you've been to that are especially memorable? Well, I'm lucky that now that I've been here over 16 years, uh, the tours are in a five-year rotating cycle by okay. geographic regions. So, for example, Northeast, Southeast, West Coast, that kind of thing. And I actually, I'm pretty sure I've been to all 50 of the continental United States, all 50 states. And obviously not Alaska and Hawaii. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> we'll get there someday. Uh, but I think what's interesting to me about the tour people and when we play and travel, the gut instinct for a musician is you're going to say, oh, you're really enjoyed playing at this, you know, fantastic concert hall somewhere. I do love that. And I'm so glad I've been able to be on stages where so many great orchestras like yours play and we can enjoy those acoustics and your audiences. Sometimes though, what's really so touching and emotional is playing in a high school gymnasium for these throngs of people. And it's just the electric energy sometimes is different than a concert hall. It just depends. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those memories stick with me even more. And I will say a lot of us in the band have these stories about being on tour and you see there's always a lot of veterans that attend and some are, you know, could be World War II veterans, Korean War, uh, War veterans. And you see them, some of them might have disabilities or very older in age, and they do everything in their power to stand up, 
for the national anthem when we play it. And at the end of every tour concert, we play the armed services medley. And our concert moderator asks if you can stand for your service song, please stand if you're able. And so many of us have these stories of looking out there and seeing, you know, an an elderly gentleman typically attempting to get up with all his strength for his service song. Mm. And it, it really, it really chokes you up because that is why we go out there and do that. And that's why the tour is so important to provide music for the people. Cause some of those people remember us coming through. We only come through every five years and it, it really means a lot to them. And they come up to us and tell us just how, how it touched them and how they're so thankful that we came to that little town in Arkansas or upstate Wisconsin. It's really something. And sometimes that's why those memories are even, uh, I cherish those just as much as playing at, you know, Symphony Center in Chicago or something. That's, that's really beautiful, Joe. Uh, how about at the White House? I mean, you play a lot of functions at the White House, of course. You're in the room where it happens in these great moments in our country's history. Do you have any memories that stick out of a really special moment at the White House? For sure. I always remember uh, two particular events. We do, some are cyclical and some are, you know, yearly. And one is the Wounded Warrior Ride. And that's when these wounded warriors come through and they're riding a bike or, you know, one of their other uh, vehicles that helps them get through. And they do this presentation. The president comes out and seeing those people, you know, the ultimate sacrifice in the military is, you know, someone that gave their life. But these men and women gave so much and may have lost a limb or have some other uh, issues. And it's really inspiring to see them. That's the true American spirit in a way, because never give up. You know, they're not going to just sit back and, you know, you know, feel sorry for themselves. They're going to they do these amazing things and do this ride and they're raising awareness and money for it. So we typically play, it's an outdoor event and we, the band plays and I, I always enjoy that one. Uh, the Kennedy center honors is really fun because you get to see the honorees come for the reception at the white house Mm -hmm. before they go to the Kennedy center. And I haven't done as many of those, but I have done a few and, it's just you you do really have to catch yourself from being starstruck sometimes uh at the white house you know we see world leaders and people and royalty and everything and it it is just amazing you have to pinch yourself sometimes um i will say one selfish memory from the white house for me personally was back in 2016 I believe it was the the National Medal of Arts and the National Humanities Medal ceremony at the White House. There was a reception and Gustavo Dudamel was the, I think he was a keynote speaker. And so the orchestra plays in the grand foyer at the White House and guests can see us when they, you know, come and go or if they're socializing. And typically they might go into the East Room or one of the other rooms for the address or keynote speeches. And while we were playing our set of music, uh, he mentioned to, I guess it was the then, I don't know if she's still there, the president of the LA Phil. 
said, you know, they're really quite good. I'm, <laughs> I'm very impressed with them. And over the course of the afternoon, uh, she came in contact with our assistant director who was conducting that on that day. And they found a piece. I guess they asked if he could conduct us just out of the blue, no, no preparation. And they went through our, we have a huge set list of music, you know, like dozens and dozens of pieces that we can pull out for any occasion at the White House. And they found something that he was going to be able to do. And I think it was um, Mozart uh, Symphony Number no. 25. Oh, cool. Uh, and so we played the first movement of that with him. And it was just really this amazing moment. He's such a dynamic individual as it is. And all the guests came out and just the room went quiet. And, you know, at the White House, at those events, there's always this din and it's, you know, it could actually get kind of loud. But they quieted down, they gathered around, they watched uh, us do that. And that was a great personal memory. Cool. And <laughs> funny, uh, the L.A. the L.A. Oh, LA Times, is that the newspaper there? They they did an article and there was a huge catchphrase that said, you know, how uh, Dudamel made his White House debut, conducting debut. Nice. Uh, so I, I was glad because that could have been any, there's only one oboe on uh, the White House orchestras and I was the one that time and it could have been any of my other colleagues. I'm just thrilled that I had that moment. So that was <laughs> selfishly, that was, that was a favorite moment for me too at the White House. That's an amazing story. I mean, I have to say hearing that, I think I would be a very poor member of the Marine Band because, uh, <laughs> you know, even, even at, you know, uh, different concerts we have, if it's a pop show or if there's a, a soloist in a concerto, even I get distracted you know, I'm. I'll, I'll look. I'll start watching the show that I'm playing, and that's. Do you ever a, watch the movies, Mike? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a dangerous. <laughs> that is a dangerous uh, situation to find yourself in. You know, in taking in the concert that you're performing in, and I can only imagine, uh, you know, being in in the White House in that situation, seeing you know. Uh, members of our government, you know, heads of foreign states, dignitaries, celebrities, you know, who who even knows who might be coming through. Yeah, it would just be an incredible environment that I, I don't think I could focus on what I was doing. I mean, I, I suppose... I suppose you're probably used to it. I don't know if I would ever get totally used to it. So that is just amazing. But, you know, we've talked about so many things that you do. Uh, I think an interesting aspect of our conversation is I think you know, for the three of us, we sort of all live in this uh, one world of music and and have, you know, maybe ideas about what it's like to be in a military band and that kind of, you know, colors our own questions. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what else about being in a military band, you know, maybe that we haven't talked about is, is interesting that you think, you know, people, certainly the three of us even, you know, wouldn't be aware of because it seems like just such a fascinating career in music that is really, really unique. Exactly. Unique is probably the perfect description for it. And I mean, obviously, maybe I want to hammer home to your listeners too, that it's, it isn't what people think. It probably wasn't what I thought, you know, 16 plus years ago. Uh, you know, it isn't all military type music or what people might think of as that or all marches all the time. Of course, 
we Mar- the March King was one of our directors, and no one plays Sousa like we do, and that's mm-hmm. going to be for eternity. Uh, but I think it's just the sheer versatility of the job, and I especially if you have any young listeners, I would love for them to know that if I was in a symphony orchestra, I've I've actually had this amazing opportunity to, to solo whether on English horn or oboe with with the group. I think six or seven times now. Mm-hmm. If I was in a symphony orchestra as a section player, I would probably never have that experience. And yeah. so we have these ranks of individuals. You know, I believe it's about twenty six clarinets and all these amazing. You know, eighteen trumpets. All these fabulous musicians and. I don't want people to think that they're buried in the section. We try to illuminate all the talent by offering up lots of different opportunities for people to solo. So if you're interested and a director asks you to to play something, doesn't mean you're the principal player. I mean, there's such a depth of talent. Not that, I mean, that they want to give everyone a moment to shine, you know, Obviously, in the smaller sections, we have a little bit more opportunity for that because we play more, you know, solo type, you know, work, music. So I think, if anything, I just want people to understand the versatility of the job. I mean, I, as an oboe player, for me to go to play an orchestra concert one week to a band concert and then play a chamber concert all in the span of a month, I mean, I don't think there's too many examples of that uh, variety for in, musicians. And I think that's such a blessing for us in the organization. That is really cool. And I actually, I didn't realize that there, um, I assumed that there was chamber music opportunities. I didn't realize that there was chamber orchestra opportunities. I think that's, that's really cool. I certainly learned something. I do have a question though. So I, you know, I understand that you guys play tons of types of music, varieties of music, I know here in Kansas City, like, for example, Mike could probably play the entire Nutcracker book from memory at this point. Um, You know, there are certain things that orchestras play all the time that, you know, (laughs) maybe Ruslan and Ludmilla might be in Mike's fingers (laughs) all the time. But I wonder if there are, if you have three tunes, not the Star Spangled Banner, we won't count that, but if there are, like, the top three tunes that you you play the most that you absolutely could just play eyes shut. <laughs> well, good question, Stephanie. I like that. It is a good question for sure. Uh, I'd probably say the, the stars and stripes forever, because uh-huh. we do play that for not our, you know, our symphonic season. Typically it might be peppered in there here and there, but we play at every uh, tour concert at the end mm-hmm. And I guess I would also say the Armed Forces medley, mm-hmm. and which, which which is also what we do on tour. And if I had to pick a third, see these are this is people are going to catch me and say, oh, but these are all like you know <laughs> patriotic said, marches yeah. and yeah. Well, no, and I, uh, I but yeah. I preface that. I mean, you know, I understand you play all sorts of stuff, but this stuff you play, you know. On a regular rotation. I guess, and yeah, Semper Fidelis, which is the yeah. is a Sousa March, but that's the March of the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah. So we, we also do that on on tour. At That's our midway point at intermission. We play that before our intermission. So I guess if I had to, I guess I would, those would be those the three pieces. Yeah. 
Very cool. Mike, what are yours? Um, well, Nutcracker, you're right. Definitely for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, honestly, I feel like we haven't actually played Ruslan and Ludmilla that often. Uh, but oh. when we do... I, I just play D major scales over and over again until it's, <laughs> until it ends, you know. Until it's and over, then I, and then I stop playing. Uh, you know, we don't we don't actually play Stars and Stripes more than maybe even just once, once a year, year at Celebration at the Station. But uh, especially for a flute player, and you know, of course, in that I play right. piccolo. That's that's pretty much burned into my memory. Uh, what one of the really funny experiences for me of playing that March is, you know, in our orchestra, when we do it, you know, the three piccolos uh, stand for, for the solo. And we, you know, we're usually on TV when we do that. And I find myself, it's so, it's so ingrained. I play it. And as I'm playing and I'm standing and I'm on TV and I know the cameras are on me and there's 50,000 people out there and I don't want to screw up. I'm actually just looking all around at the spectacle of what's going on. And I'm watching little kids, you know, dancing. And then at some point, again, I have to be like, no, no, you're doing a show right now. Pay attention, you know. <laughs> Yet another reason that Yet Mike another cannot reason. be uh, no. <laughs> left his own devices. I am no, easily distracted. I'm like a squirrel, you know. <laughs> that is funny. That is funny. Well, to bring this all back to uh, Kansas City Symphony and this podcast, you know, two things that we've talked about today that I want to make mention of, I think, is last year for Memorial Day on this podcast, we did an episode with a wounded warrior. Joe, you were mentioning the wounded warriors and how that was one of your favorite memories from playing at the White House. Uh, Tim Donnelly, a Marine, joined us last year on the podcast. So if you've never listened to that episode, it's called Resilient Indeed. That was one of my favorite episodes we've ever done, guys. And I, uh, even if you've listened to that episode before, it would be worth going back and revisiting this Memorial Day after you listen to this great episode with Mr. DeLuccio. And also, our former executive director, Frank Byrne, was a member of the President's Home for 27 years. And he played tuba and toured with the band, and he also was an administrator um, so I think that's kind of a cool tie-in that we have with the President's Zone here at the Kansas City Symphony as well. Well, Joe, we, we're getting to the end of our interview here today, but we always ask all of our guests the same two questions. Um, and those two questions are, what is your favorite drink of choice? And if you were at a bar and Beethoven was just sitting there at the bar next to you and he had a drink as well, what would you ask him if you could ask Mr. Beethoven anything? Well, my favorite drink is... Probably a vodka gimlet nice. with some, you know, high, high classy vodka, maybe Belvedere or Kettle One or Grey Goose. You know, you got to go with the good stuff. Uh, yeah. And I will say I was this was one of the questions that I was most nervous about <laughs> only because where where do I go with this? Uh, unfortunately, I settled on it's a bit cliche, I think if I was going to be able to sit down with Beethoven, I'd probably say to him, you know, when you felt that your hearing was going or when you, that those dark days were coming, I mean, he was, you know, a turbulent individual, like in his, you know, life, a lot of angst and things. And I, I think I would probably say, how did you know that everything was going to just work out so seamlessly? Were you that confident in your, skill level at the time that it was just going to be, everything was going to be okay. Because 
I think a lot of us could use that pep talk and say, when you hmm. think that <laughs> things are are rough, maybe you know you can forge through it somehow. So I, I guess not to go to his hearing loss, but that would be that's so fascinating to me that he just he just went with it and his output after that started happening was pretty big, right? I mean, yeah. so that that's might be what I asked him after a few gimlets. Maybe <laughs> Beethoven would have made a great Marine with the never give up motto, you know? Well, yeah, he certainly true. did not give up at all and wrote some of his best music after he was pretty much completely deaf. That's I, I love your answer there, Joe. That's cool. He did, of course, write maybe his most famous march from the Ninth Symphony. After oh, yeah. after he was deaf, so you know he Very could true. be uh, he could be the resident composer for the Marine Band, perhaps in a weird alternate future. <laughs> <laughs> we we would take that probably. We we we'd sign up for that. <laughs> yeah, I would do well, Joe. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful uh, to meet you and get to know you and get to know a lot more about the Marine Band and the service bands in general. And most importantly, thank you for your music and for your service uh, to our country because it cannot be overstated the contribution uh, that music makes to culture and society everywhere. And the fact that uh, you all are so dedicated to providing music that supports our country is is really, really special. And uh, I admire that greatly. And thank you. You're here. Well, thank you so much, guys. This has really been a blast for me. And it's always fun to talk about my job and maybe, you know, give some people some illumination on what it's really like behind the uh, red velvet curtain, so to speak. So, uh, but no, it's been really fun and I'm glad we were able to do this. Thank you for asking me. And of course, I wish you guys and all of your listeners a uh, very happy and safe Memorial Day. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Joe. Thank you. You too. So in our show notes this week, we will include some recordings of the United States Marine Band and maybe I'll find a way to incorporate some of those well-known tunes that Joe mentioned, Stars and Stripes <laughs> and the Armed Forces Salute, which is always something that uh, that I absolutely treasure when we when we perform that here in Kansas City and of course Semper Fidelis. Well guys, we have made it through yet another season of Beethoven Walks into a Bar. Can you believe it? What, like three seasons. Yeah. That's crazy. So in next week's season finale, we're going to take a deep dive into the question on all of our guests' minds, what would you ask Beethoven? Joe's certainly not the only person who felt nervous <laughs> when we asked this question. And we're going to revisit some of the most intriguing questions asked by our guests over the course of the first three seasons. And we'll do our very best to uncover them and, and answer them in the best way that the three of our inquiring minds can. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an incredible third season, and I look forward to wrapping it up with you guys next week in our favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>